Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the checkout. It's a podcast that you should subscribe to. Have you subscribed yet? We hope so. At WBGO, WBGO Studios, all of our shows archived at checkoutjazz.org, and of course on the radio at eighty-eight point three FM and WBGO.org. I'm Simon Rentner. Today we're honoring a quiet yet quite profound legacy left by the pianist Frank Kimbrough. A model side man, generous band leader and educator, and one of the purest improvisers. Frank's departure sent shockwaves through the jazz community on December 30th, 2020. It is believed he died from a heart attack from his home in Queens at the age of 64. We welcome one of Frank's biggest champions, WBGO's editorial director, Nate Chenen, as we explore another dimension to his artistry that isn't talked about enough. Frank Kimbrough, the composer. What's up, dude? Hey, Simon. Thank you for giving it up for Frank. It's a moment of some poignancy, but also you know, just a lot of celebration. And as you alluded to, kind of some awe at what this man accomplished, you know, some of which we were well aware of, and some of which I think, until you put it all together like this, it, you don't really realize. Frank, the composer, because, you know, we love him as the improviser and the consummate band leader and sideman. He has never really been showcased quite like this. And Nate, you got the scoop on this entire thing. You were there in person and wrote an article about it in the New York Times called Jazz Musicians Unite with One Goal, celebrating Frank Kimbrough. Just last week, Nouvelle Records put together a massive tribute to Frank Kimbrough. It's called simply Kimbrough. It is a digital release available on Bandcamp and streaming services, and it features more than 65 musicians in constantly changing configurations. Um, they made this album with a marathon series of sessions, I think over three days, maybe four days, uh, in a studio on the, on the Lower East Side a couple months ago. And they recorded almost 60 Frank Kimbrough compositions during this thing. But the main thing that is quite amazing about this album, it happened not only in spite of pandemic conditions, but in some ways because of them, but also just the spirit among all these musicians is incredible. So throughout this podcast, we're going to bring you some of the poignant reflections by some of the musicians that were at this uh, epic recording session. Bassist Ben Allison, the pianist Craig Taborn, trumpeter Ron Orton, and Kimbrough Mentee, also a formidable pianist and the organizer, Elon Mailer. And what we just heard to begin the show, I decided to just throw in a composition called Kid Stuff, mm. featuring Ben Allison, Kirk Konefke, Rich Perry, Micah Thomas, and Jeff Williams. As soon as you heard this was happening, I want to know what you felt, what you were thinking, and can you just display to us your glee? <laughs> well, it's a funny thing, right? Because I was very excited. I mean, keep in mind, this was um, the middle of May, right? And so um, I actually was racing to get, uh, to get vaccinated in time because I, I did not feel that it would be appropriate for me to be in that studio for myself or for others 
if I, if I wasn't inoculated, it was right down to the wire. I got my second shot and I counted down the days. As soon as that waiting period was over, I was able to go into the studio and it was, it was a close call. Um, so I was nervous and I went into the studio and it was, some people were, were wearing masks. Um, I wore my mask the whole time. Obviously the horn players took theirs off in the studio, you know, there were hugs, but there were also some like elbow bumps and fist bumps, you know? So it was like, things were kind of uncertain. This was an incredible thing that happened out of public view, right? Elon really wanted to bring together different generations on almost every track. Um, it was important to him to mix things up and to also mix up experience. So people who had never met before um, or people who hadn't seen each other in 20 years, you know, there was a lot of that going on. And, you know, these were almost all first takes. Um, it was like Grand Central Station in there. Cut a take, you know, engineer would patch in and Elon would say, man, guys, that was beautiful. And they'd be like, yeah, we're good, okay. And then he's like, all right, so for the next one, uh, Clarence, you're gonna stay in there, but uh, John Hayberg, you come out because uh, Michael Formanek is going in. All right, Donnie McCaslin, you're staying there, and now we're gonna send in Dave Douglas. You know, it was just like, it was, it was crazy. Let's hear from Elon Mailer himself on the scheduling and curation of this all. The first thing was to get everybody's availability, which is like, if it wasn't the pandemic, it wasn't this moment where everybody's finally like ready to play music again, but not yet touring. <laughs> you know, just the fact that everybody's in the same city is, is crazy. I had the tunes and I, was, I spent about a week playing through the music and listening to as much of it as I could. And it was very therapeutic for me, like processing Frank's death just to be so heavy in the music. And then I started putting bands together and I sort of had like, I was like, okay, we need, like I had a block of bass players, you know, lined up and then I would layer like, actually, actually I had to start with pianists and then I would layer rhythm sections on that. And then I decided that to make it as complicated as possible, I wanted, I wanted every song to be a different configuration. I got very obsessive putting it together. It was like, I've never fallen as deeply into anything as I fell into this project. Like, I'd be up until two, three in the morning, like 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 just putting bands together and then going and playing them on the with headphones, the keyboard, you know, yeah. <laughs> and then like putting putting the tune in there and then changing it and then flipping around and then falling asleep and dreaming about it <laughs> and then waking up in the morning and like right back at it. Like yeah. It was very like um, his music's so evocative. There's something beautiful about this image of Elon just um, fixating on these tunes and imagining these different configurations and then like, you know. The interiority of that moment is true to Frank in a certain way. And in his liner notes, Elon writes about this. Um, you know, Frank Kimbrough was a guy who composed um, on a park bench. Um, and in fact, when I profiled him for Jazz Times in the, uh, probably around 2005 or so, he was living in an apartment in Long Island City and did not have a piano. Wow. His access to a piano was limited to the time he spent at that time at New York University. That's nuts. But you know, sometimes these restrictions can, can end up being sort of interesting prods to creativity because what Frank would do is he would walk around the city and when he had an idea, a musical idea, he would sit down and he would just write it out.
He had perfect pitch. He had an incredible harmonic sensibility. So he could he could really create these sort of um, fully realized and beautifully insinuative compositions just with you know pad and and pen. Um, and and there's something so bananas about that. Um, and and I think you know as you listen to this new set, Elon had a real instinct for thinking like, well, who is going to really spark with this particular tune? Take us to a tune that we can just listen to real quick right now. What do you want to share with our audience? Well, this is one of the songs that I was was there for. Um, in fact, I was um, I was speaking with Ben Allison in the hallway, and I think we're going to hear from Ben in a moment. And I, I had this conversation with Ben, and Elon popped out of the studio and said, Hey, Ben, you want to play on TMI? Uh, and so this was in Audible. And Ben said, Oh, man, that... I haven't played that tune in more than 20 years. It's a finger buster. Um, but Ben went in and got together with trumpeter Ron Horton and tenor saxophonist Donnie McCaslin and guitarist Ben Maunder and drummer Douglas Mariner. And they played this incredible, uh, very kind of um, playful and, and mischievous tune. Thank you. 
TMI. As we move on and as we continue to talk about Frank Kimbrough, the composer, I actually wanted to excerpt something that Elon wrote in the liner notes that you can also read if you go to the Bandcamp page for this album. There's something insubstantial about jazz composition. Often just one page long, single notated lines over chord symbols, little translucent scraps of melody and harmony, a lens to see the world through, an opening. Supposedly, Duke Ellington wrote Solitude in 20 minutes because his band needed one more tune for the record date. Wayne Shorter is one of the most remarkable musicians of the 20th century, but you wouldn't necessarily be wrong in saying his greatest achievement was the morning he spent writing the 16 measures of Nefertiti. Frank didn't so much compose songs as discover them. He wrote almost all of them while wandering through the city, like you said, Nate. I want to call him a nocturnal lepidopterist out with his butterfly net in the odd corners of the city, but that's not really it. He wasn't precious about it. He didn't catalog his tunes. He wasn't thirsting for any kind of rare discovery. Frank wrote music the same way he improvised, like that lady in Washington Square Park who feeds all the squirrels. The music came to him. I just love that. Frank as a New York character, you know? Um, exactly. You know, something really cool happened in Frank's life and career. And in the, and in the New York City jazz scene, um, when he was hired by Juilliard, because, you know, he had been teaching at NYU and I think, I think maybe at the new school for a time. But when he got to Juilliard, they really gave him freedom to, to be himself within the structure of this incredibly prestigious institution. And I've spoken to a, a, quite a few of his students. Um, recently, I was talking to, I saw the Westerlies uh, out, in, out at Dave Douglas's house. And this was right after, it was maybe a week or two after the Nouvelle sessions. And so I was talking to the Westerlies because Riley Mulherkar, the trumpeter, had played on the sessions. <laughs> The trombonist, one of the trombonists in the band, Andy Clausen, also went to Juilliard. And he told me that at the time he was there, especially, there was this kind of, you know, there was a certain rigidity to the, the teaching methods at Juilliard. There was this idea that like, well, this is how you do this, you know, as a jazz musician, you know, and here's what you need to, you know, you've got to do it this way. You've got to learn it this way. And he said that Frank was like the one shining, um, like obstinate, um, counter argument to all of that. Um, and the whole way that he imparted knowledge was very like, it was very Zen. It was very like, um, like slippery. Um, it was kind of iconoclastic in a certain way. Um, separately, I talked to Emmanuel Wilkins, the alto saxophonist that I know you and I both love. And Emmanuel said, yeah, you know, after Frank died, I, I began to realize that all these things that I thought were unique to my experience with him. Like he did a version of that with everybody, including he was famous among his students for like taking, he's like, hey, let's go on a walk. Like, and they would, you know, he would take a student and walk around New York City for like three or four hours, just talking and listening and walking. And, you know, just, it was like this, you know, I mean, who does that, right? Like a jazz professor, he's like, Hey, for our next uh, for our next session, like meet me on the corner of you know 59th and Lex, uh, and make sure you got a few hours to spare. <laughs> you know. 
It's it gives me a picture of a Hollywood film. It's definitely a beautiful mind. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a testament to this idea that that Frank, like his heroes, right? People like Andrew Hill and Thelonious Monk, um, and Herbie Nichols and Annette Peacock and Carla Bley. You know, he he was not interested in towing any line or fulfilling any prescription. You know, like he was really. He was really into the idea of going his own way. I mean, I almost feel like we can make this case later in the show, Nate, but I sometimes wonder that he was so consumed with his art and craft, which is maybe why he wasn't more famous. <laughs> but we can talk about that later. On your note um, of what you just said, I want to play a tune featuring Elon Mailer with Martin Wind on bass and Francisco Mela on drums called 20 Bars, because it reminds me of one of those greats that you just mentioned.
I mean, I don't know about you, Nate, but 20 bars has Monk written all over it. Yeah. So we've got an image of Frank from you, Nate. Let's hear it from Ben Allison's perspective. He's one of my dearest, closest friends and musical compatriots. And it feels like he's the, the, <laughs> the force bringing together a lot of musicians. I mean, Elon's organizing the sessions, but it's his musicality and what he did as an artist that coalesces other musicians like like moths around a flame. We talked a lot about that, like how to bring people together around an idea. His ideas were were challenging. This isn't pop music. This is like uh, music that demands a kind of um, commitment and uh, and an attention to to detail. Hearing everybody come together around this music is just is life affirming too big a phrase? I don't think so. Not in this it, moment. <laughs> it feels like that to me. I mean, yeah. honestly, man. Yeah. I mean, honestly, he was um, um, a lovable curmudgeon. You know, he had a rough edge. It was a rough edge based on the fact that the, a lot of the stuff that he was wanted to do wasn't widely accepted. You know, culturally, mm -hmm. right? Um, which I totally understood. But you can see how here. It is, in, in the fact that it's drawn all these people together around his music. I mean, there's so much beauty in it and yeah. so much intimacy and so much truth. Ben Allison talking about Frank Kimbrough, the curmudgeon, but also the idealist, right? He is the artist that we all look to, to be truthful and authentic, basically. Frank was a no BS kind of guy. On the one hand, he was not like an ideologue. And he wasn't opposed to music that that stayed within the the lines, you know. Like he he really loved to reach inside the piano and do like weird things, right? <laughs> right. To characterize him as a an avant gardist is true, but not complete. I think of him as like constantly flowing back and forth across a spectrum. Well, I just feel like he tried to extract the most beautiful sound he could at any given moment. And if you heard him, you know, with the Maria Schneider Orchestra, you know, it's it's almost guaranteed that you had a moment like that where something he played just made you forget to breathe for a second. Frank died and I wrote his obituary, Maria told me, uh, really through tears, that so much of what we associate with the orchestra, that combination of lyricism and beauty, and then like open possibility, that, you know, that feeling that her band has, where things just kind of like open up as if you're like coming out of a train tunnel and suddenly like you see like this big open sky, that feeling she really, um, gave credit to Frank for, for sort of showing the way. I think he was almost 
incapable of an insincere note. And for that reason, I think it worked at cross purposes in terms of him getting over, you know, with a commercial career. He got a little too itchy when it was time to, to settle into the expected thing. So the irony here, Nate, is here we are celebrating Frank Kimbrough, the composer, but really at the core of it, he was a madman improviser. Absolutely fearless. I just want to set it up with this Ron Horton quote that you got from the studio. You know, he wasn't about rehearsing. You know, there was a joke, uh, Jeff Hirschfield said it, and um, he called Jeff for a record date. And let's say it was October the 12th or something. And Jeff goes, so when is the rehearsal? And Frank goes, October the 13th, you know? <laughs> and that's that's what Frank was about. He's like, there's not going to be a rehearsal. You know mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. I'm sure he was smiling, man, because it's not just his music. It's done in a, a spirit that he would have done it in. If Frank were still alive and we were doing the music of Paul Blay or the music of uh, Paul Motion or music of Andrew Hill or Herbie Nichols or something, he would, he would enjoy doing it the same way. No mm -hmm. rehearsal, put a bunch of cats together, and if they hadn't seen a single Herbie Nichols tune, perfect. You know, that's that's a very like old school jazz sensibility in a way. You know, I feel like Frank came up in a way that was a lot more sort of um, folk than the way that a lot of jazz musicians come up now. He was the first to laugh at the irony that he was at Juilliard. You know, this guy who, who didn't get a jazz degree himself. You know, he really came up playing playing, you know, and, and he grew up in a place where there wasn't a local record shop. He had to kind of work to find information. You know, he told me once that um, the most formative gig that he ever had was a lousy gig at a, at a Greenwich Village restaurant where he played, for, you know, solo piano for five years. Um, he couldn't get any gigs anywhere else. So he was playing in this in this place where, you know, people are eating and clanging their silverware and, you know, every once in a while somebody would request a song. Um, but he, he approached it almost like an artist residency. <laughs> For five years, every single night that he played that thankless gig, he made it a mission to come with a new tune that he hadn't mastered, you know? whether it was a standard or a, or a monk tune or an Ellington tune, he came to this gig and every time he played, he, he said, all right, by the end of this night, I'm gonna really know this tune. You know, when you say madman, I mean, okay, sure, but like Frank was extremely disciplined and he was extremely methodical in his approach to freedom.
So when I first walked into the studio, Joe was playing Joe Lovano with Dave Douglas, his his uh, frontline partner in in the band Sound Prince, and Clarence Penn, who ha has played with Dave Douglas in other settings, and then the bassist John Hebert, who I don't think either of them had played much with, and on piano was Craig Taborn, who doesn't have a whole lot of experience with any of those guys. When I sat down next to the engineer, Elon handed me um, the book of tunes. And so I was actually reading the, the, you know, the lead sheet. And I couldn't help but notice that this tune 727, it had, you know, almost 40 bars of sus chords, just like, you know, one chord every four bars. And it was all sus chords, you know? There was one little line, just one melodic line. But then as you listen to these guys play the tune, it just, it just sounded so fully inhabited. They knew what to do with this information. Um, and you know, that's a testament to how deeply Frank understood improvisers. You also got Craig Taborn basically to illustrate this idea. So let's let's hear from him. There's an aspect of it that feels the stuff that's there. It's like these essential information guy pulls, you know, it's reductive of maybe like a larger scheme. It's like, what's the thing that needs to be here that makes this this phrase happen? And then everything else is stripped away. I don't mm -hmm. know if he worked back from a larger thing in his head or if he worked up to this but right, whatever right. it is it's that essential thing which i really like anymore and you start having these things that overwhelm the improvisation but with less it, it ceases to have cohesion as a tune yeah. you know and it's walking that line it's it's he's obviously a real improviser composer that's what i would say and i have a real in my world i have a real specific sense of what that means there's a lot mm -hmm. of jazz and great improvisers and jazz composers who I wouldn't who don't necessarily write that way they write a composite they write composition and leave space for improvisation but these tunes feel like they're made to be yeah. improvised on the you know, the whole way you know what I'm saying yeah, yeah yeah definitely I don't think about this particular concept enough I feel like like mm. I think about composing as composing I think about improvising as improvising but what about writing songs to be improvised right it's almost like you get extra points you know doing, <laughs> doing it frank's way but you know there, there's another thing like i was so struck by by how beautifully craig plays frank's music um on that tune 727 but also very much on a song called air which is all about, you know, overtone. You know, on that one, he's playing with Dave Douglas and Jeff Cosgrove on drums. Craig really understands that, and he's far from the only one.
I mean, there's a, there's a lot of incredible piano playing on this set, you know, by everyone from Fred Hirsch, who is, I think, maybe a few years older than Frank, but th they kind of came up around the same time, to um, Dan Tepfer and Glenn Zaleski and Helen Sung and Elio Villafranca, um, uh, Isaiah Thompson, uh, Addison Fry. There's, there's actually... Um, there's a pianist, and this is cool. This this actually is a testament to how sort of up to the moment this set is. There was a pianist on this set who plays incredibly, who I had never encountered in any form until I heard him in the studio. And he is still a student, and his name is Sean Mason. And he plays on uh, a track called For Jimmy G and also Eventualities. And Eventualities uh, has a, uh, a saxophone duel of sorts between Donnie McCaslin and Emmanuel Wilkins, right? And, and so when I talked to Emmanuel, I was like, um, had you met Donnie? Or I said, had you played with Donnie before? He's like, I, I'd never met Donnie McCaslin until I walked into the studio. And, and so you're literally witnessing like a, a first time meeting period and Emmanuel's like yeah it was it was fun man it was really cool and you know what's crazy afterwards we were talking we realized that we're basically neighbors in Brooklyn oh man and so this is a big part of what Elon set out to do here you know he's like I want to make all these connections because that's what Frank did and I love the idea that like 5 10 15 25 years from now like two musicians will get together and do something together and there will be this legacy where like oh yeah like first time I met this guy was at that Frank Kimbrough thing. Check out Nate Chenen's article in the New York Times about this record session, Kimbrough. You can find it on Bandcamp or wherever you stream. And we also featured a track, 727, in Take 5 at WBGO. So uh, don't forget to consult Take 5. Um, and, and thank you, Simon, for letting me, uh, letting me crash the checkout with uh, this project. Uh, I, I, I'm glad that it was such a good fit.
Frank Kimbrough's eventualities, Emmanuel Wilkins, Donnie McCaslin, Sean Mason, Michael Formanek, and Billy Drummond performing on Kimbrough. And you can go get it right now on Bandcamp. All proceeds go to the Frank Kimbrough Scholarship Fund at the Juilliard School. And we thank Nate for joining us again for this great story. Again, go to the New York Times if you want to read more about it. And you can also follow him on Twitter. And our show has a handle, too, at Checkout Jazz. We also have a Facebook page. The Checkout is a production of WBGO Studios. I'm Simon Rentner. Thanks for checking us out.